1 Samuel chapter 25. In 1983, in the college basketball tournament, which is called March Madness, the two best teams in the country were facing off, but it wasn't in the finals. It was in the semifinals, what's called the Final Four. It was a matchup between the Houston Cougars and the Louisville Cardinals. These were the two best teams in the country. Both were number one seeds. Both were very high-powered. Both teams had won at least 30 games already that year, and they both were so good that they had their own cool nicknames given to them. Houston, some of you know, was a team nicknamed Phi Slamma Jamma. And Louisville, though a less-known nickname, they were called the Doctors of Dunk. And so you had two high-powered teams playing each other, and it sure seemed like the winner of that game was destined to become the national champion because the team that they would face in the finals was not near as strong. The winner of Houston and Louisville would play North Carolina State that was a six-seeded team that had already lost ten games that year. Not that they were bad but they weren't near on the same level as Houston and Louisville. So whoever won that game would surely crush NC State. And Houston had two future Hall of Famers on its team, Hakeem Olajuwon and Clyde Drexler. And they got the best of Louisville in a tough-fought, high-scoring game. And so it was just a matter of going out and playing the next game, and they would surely be the national champions. In 1 Samuel chapter 24, we saw where David won a great victory, if we can call it that, when Saul came into the cave that he and his men were hiding. But instead of taking vengeance on Saul, on that golden opportunity, he could, have, he could have killed Saul. His men were urging him to kill Saul and encouraging him to do it. But he doesn't do that. He has this great victory because of the mercy that he shows Saul. He didn't kill Saul. He didn't repay Saul evil with evil, but evil with good. And he said he was just going to leave everything up to God. It's one of the most amazing stories in the Bible of a man showing mercy instead of vengeance. And, and if we can keep using that idea of, of a victory, a success in David's spiritual life, it was, a, it was a big win for him that day in the cave. But as we'll see as we get into 1 Samuel 25, the very next few things we see in David's life are something that we all know to be true in our lives as well, is that when we enjoy great victories or great success one day, that doesn't mean tomorrow will turn out the same. Tough times can still find you, and you better not let your guard down and think that because you had one victory that you're guaranteed the next. Look at 1 Samuel 25, and let's just look at verse 1 for a moment. Right after David's great victory over vengeance, there's a very sad note for David and for all of Israel. Chapter 25, verse 1 says, And Samuel died. And all the Israelites were gathered together and lamented him and buried him in his house at Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. The death of the prophet Samuel truly marked an end of an era for Israel. Samuel was the last judge. The times of the judges were completely over now. I know we've had King Saul for decades, but Samuel was that last surviving judge. He was the first named male prophet that prophesied over all Israel since Moses. He's the man who anointed the first two kings of Israel... It's really hard to overstate how important Samuel was to Israel. 
and now he has passed away. Remember how the book of 1 Samuel started? It was really before Samuel was born, right? His mother, Hannah, wanted a child so bad, but she was barren. And she prayed to God, if you will just bless me with a son, I will give him back to you. And God did. God answered her prayer, and uh, Hannah kept her into the bargain as well. Samuel was born, and when he was old enough, Hannah left him with Eli there at the tabernacle in Shiloh. And God used Samuel in a mighty way. And so this death of one man affected the entire nation. Many representatives, leaders, elders, people from all over, from all the tribes would have gathered to pay their respect uh, to Samuel, to mourn for him. That's what is meant there when it says all Israel, uh, all the Israelites were gathered. It doesn't mean that every single individual Israelite was gathered. Now, sure, tons of them were, but definitely representatives from each tribe, from each family, all the leaders, all the elders. It was a nationwide funeral. Except where does it say David went? He didn't go to Ramah, did he? It says, David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, which is, which is south. Why do you think David did that? Maybe he thought that Samuel's death would, would fuel Saul's rage against him. Maybe hearing about Samuel would bring back all the things in Saul's mind that Samuel has said about him, that God has torn the kingdom away from you, that I'm not going to be, quote, your prophet anymore. I'm not helping you out. I'm not telling you what God says anymore. You're on your own, Saul. Maybe that would kind of fuel his rage against David again. You know, if Saul treated David the way he did while Samuel was alive, what in the world is Saul going to do now that Samuel's dead? Perhaps that was some of it. Perhaps it was nothing more than David just being aware that if I go to this public event, this is going to be a very dangerous thing for me because then I have exposed myself to Saul and all his men. But this had to be so hard for David. Probably more than any Israelite in, in, in all of Israel, he would have wanted to, been, uh, to be at Samuel's funeral service, at Samuel's memorial service. Remember, when they met, David was a teenage shepherd boy keeping his father's flock. And as Samuel came to Jesse's house to anoint the next king, every one of David's brothers lined up. They looked big and strong. They looked handsome. And Samuel said, God isn't choosing any of these. God looks on the heart. Do you have any more sons? And Jesse said, well, we got the guy that keeps the sheep. He's the youngest one. Bring him in. And God let Samuel know that this is the one. And Samuel anointed David as a teenage shepherd to be the next king. And now that man has passed away. Perhaps the man in Israel other than David that actually truly knew how evil Saul was. I'm sure David felt alone. What would happen now? So after David spares Saul's life, we're told that Samuel loses his, that he's passed away. In our lives, we're not immune to sorrow, even when individually or as a church, we may have great blessings or great victories one day. That doesn't mean that the next day is going to be all roses and sunshine. We live in a sin-cursed world. 
what did Paul tell the Romans was the wages of sin? Death. You've heard the old joke before that there's only two things in life you can count on? Death and taxes, right? There's some truth to that a little bit. Death is a real part of life because of sin. But the wonderful thing about it is that the Bible teaches us that Jesus Christ has conquered sin and death. He died on the cross taking upon His sinless shoulders every mistake you've made and ever will made, every sin you've ever committed or will commit. The sins of the entire world were laid on His shoulders and He took them to the cross and He died, but He was raised out of the grave by the power of God triumphant over death. We serve an amazing God. So because of the love, grace, and mercy of our God, death does not have the final say. Paul did tell the Romans, for the wages of sin is death, but do you know how that verse ends? He said, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The wages of sin is death. But if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you've got life. If you've repented of your sins and you've trusted in Jesus as your Savior, you will never die spiritually. And if you do die physically before He returns, you know what will happen when He comes back? He will raise you from the grave and change your mortal body into an immortal body. A glorious one, similar to His I can't even begin to explain that or imagine how wonderful that's going to be. But that ought to give us some encouragement. Even though sin is very real, death is very real, but our God is stronger than sin and death. He's already defeated it. He defeated it in His Son. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, you need to do so this morning. We've got one verse about Samuel's death. That's it. Just one verse. Samuel, the amazing prophet and man he is, it's just one verse. And then life moves on, right? Doesn't it feel like that sometime if you lose a loved one? That it bothers you for a lot longer maybe than it bothers everybody else. It takes you a lot longer to grieve over that person than everyone else. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just part of life. But it's sometimes it seems like everybody else just moves on. Don't let that discourage you. It doesn't mean people don't care, that they don't love you, or that they're not grieving too. But we see that here in, in Samuel. One verse about Samuel's death, and then we move on. Look at verse 2 and 3. We're introduced to a man named Nabal and his wife Abigail. And there was a man in my own, verse 2, whose possessions were in Carmel. And the man was very great. And he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal. In the name of his wife, Abigail. And she was a woman of good understanding and of beautiful countenance. But the man was churlish and evil in his doings, and he was of the house of Caleb. We're told about Nabal and Abigail here. And you may have a note in your Bible, maybe a footnote or something, that tells you what the word Nabal actually means. Nabal is a Hebrew word for fool or foolish. So some wonder, was this actually his name or maybe a nickname that he earned? I don't know why you would name your child fool, but he might have earned that nickname. He surely did. So he is Nabal. He is foolish. And we're told that Nabal lived in Carmel, and that's not Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel is kind of north, northeast, uh, northwest Israel. 
But this city of Carmel would have been more in the south, closer to where David's hideouts were. All right, much closer to David than the mountain that we call Carmel. We're told that this man was very great. He was filthy rich. He was wealthy. Um, the, the idea of him being very great doesn't describe his character. He wasn't a very great man in the sense of being godly and righteous and helpful and all those things. But in the eyes of the world, he was very great. He had at least 3,000 sheep, 1,000 goats, filthy rich. Who knows what else he had that we're not even told about. Who knows how many servants and shepherds he had it working under him. It was a very rich man who was, who was given this great opportunity to be able to bless others. But he was a fool. We're told that he was churlish, which means cruel, stubborn, rough, obstinate. This same word was used to describe the nation of Israel several times, and it was translated as stiff-necked. You remember those times when Israel would murmur, or they would, they would be stubborn, they wouldn't listen to God, and they were called a stiff-necked people? This is the same word that's used to describe Nabal. He was stubborn, he was cruel, he was obstinate, he was a jerk. He was evil in his doings, the Bible says, which to me it's, it's, it's fascinating how open-ended that is. It doesn't specify any more than he's evil in his doings. What doings? Yes. Anything the man did was evil. Was it in his business life? Yes. What about his family life? Yes. What about you name it? The man was evil in his doings. All of his actions. He was cruel, selfish, and an evil fool who, who landed a wife like Abigail. Right? Abigail, her name means my father is joy. A lot different than fool, right? We're told she was a beautiful woman, but more important than that, she was, she was beautiful on the inside. She was a woman of good understanding. She was wise. And, and we'll see as we move on through this story the next couple weeks, her wisdom manifests itself in what she does. You say, why in the world are these two people together? I mean, polar opposites, Nabal and Abigail. Well, remember in this culture, and especially during this time, uh, marriages were arranged. And so it wasn't that probably that Abigail fell in love with this jerk, selfish, cruel man named Nabal, but this was an arranged marriage, and what a catch. Nabal's rich. They're very different people. Uh, unfortunately for Abigail, she got the, the short end of that deal, being married to the fool. So look at verse 4 through 9, now that we know Nabal a little bit. Um, Nabal is going to be shearing his sheep, and David hears about it. Look at verse 4 through 9. And David heard in the wilderness that Nabal did shear his sheep. And David sent out ten young men, and David said unto the young men, Get you up to Carmel, and go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus shall ye say to him that liveth in prosperity, Peace be both to thee, and peace be to thine house, and peace be unto all that thou hast. And now I have heard that thou hast shears. Now thy shepherds which were with us... We hurt them not, neither was there aught missing unto them. All the while they were in Carmel. Ask the young men, and they will show thee. Wherefore, let the young men find favor in thine eyes, for we come in a good day. Give, I pray thee, whatsoever cometh to thine hand unto thy servants and to thy son David. And when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all those words in the name of David and ceased. So apparently when David and his men were kind of hit out in this region of my own, which is around uh, Carmel and around Nabal's territory. 
that's back in chapter 23 at the end of that chapter. It talks about David being in my own. Apparently, what we didn't know then is that Nabal had some of his shepherds in that area, some of his flocks, and what David's men did was actually protect them. They kind of made a wall about these very um, susceptible shepherds. They weren't going to fight anybody off who came to who came with an army to steal sheep or to steal goats or anything like that. Remember David's men, they numbered about 600, which is nothing compared to Saul's army, but that's a huge group when you're talking about shepherds. Had David been a man like Nabal, his army would have just stolen all of those sheep and goats. But David wasn't like that. He knew that would have been wrong, and instead of, of taking advantage of Nabal, instead of stealing some of his animals or anything like that, he actually protected them against other men who would have raided them. This wilderness area, you're, you're kind of away from civilization, so it's kind of like survival of the fittest. Anything goes. Might makes right. It could have easily happened that somebody could have come and stolen some of Nabal's possessions had it not been for David. David and his men stood up and protected them. They weren't asked to do this. It wasn't a deal in place. David just knew it was right. He just knew this is what ought to happen. And so when he hears about Nabal shearing his sheep, he sends some men to ask Nabal for a blessing. And we need to understand that this is not David being selfish. We might read it that way. David, you had no right to ask for some of that stuff. It's not a selfish thing from David. First of all, the sheep shearing times of the year were festivals. These were celebrations. This was a time of abundance, a time of rejoicing, a time of feasting. So even a man who was filthy rich like Nabal would even have an, an abundance during the sheep shearing season. He's got plenty to spare. Especially a man like Nabal, he could have given a lot away to others to help them. Being so rich. Also, David asked in a very respectful manner. He wants peace upon Nabal. He may know a little bit about who Nabal is, but he still says peace. Peace to you. He asks in a very polite way, a humble way. It's not that he was necessarily owed something for protecting Nabal's sheep, but a good man would have had no problem compensating David for that, for that wonderful service. And so David asked for that. He asked for that blessing. But Nabal's not a good man, is he? He's a fool, right? So look at how he responds to David's men in verse 10 and 11. And Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? There be many servants nowadays that break away every man from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my flesh that I have killed for my shearers and give it unto men whom I know not whence they be? Ouch. Now you know why he's called Nabal, right? His response fits his character. We were told earlier that he was from the, uh, the family of Caleb. He's a Calebite, which means he's a member of the tribe of Judah. You remember what tribe David's in? Judah. So there, somewhere down the line, these two men are in the same tribe. They're relatives. They're related, which may be why he knows David's father is Jesse. But it also makes it worse that these men are kinsmen and Nabal still treats him so poorly, so arrogant and selfish. No sympathy for even a man of his own tribe. In fact, he kind of views David as a rebel, doesn't he? 
the end of verse 10, there's a lot of servants breaking away from their masters now. Now, I, I can't be part of that. I know you've rebelled against Saul. Makes you wonder what kind of lies Saul's feeding the people, or at least some people. So not only was there no love, no compassion in his response, but did you notice the selfishness in verse 11? The amount of first-person pronouns is staggering in that verse. Let's read it again. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my flesh that I have killed for my shearers and give it unto men whom I know not whence they be? Do you think Nabal was a man who was thankful to God for what he had? It doesn't sound like it to me. He is a selfish, greedy, self-centered fool. Those were his possessions. Mine. It's like a two-year-old playing with a toy. Mine. These are my possessions. I worked for them. I worked hard. And I'm not giving them away to you. Really? Nabal had more than enough to support his family and his servants, especially during a festival time. And yet he shows no compassion, no concern for others. Nabal is essentially an illustration of how not to be rich, of how not to view physical possessions. Whether you're rich or poor or somewhere in between, do not view your possessions as mine. They're gifts from God. Everything in your life that's good is because of God's grace and mercy. Say, no, I worked hard for that. Who gave you the health to work hard? I used my money to buy that. Who gave you the ability to earn money? Everything good in your life is a gift from God. Don't ever be unthankful for that and don't ever be selfish and, and territorial with your stuff like that. You know, one of, the most, one of the most often misquoted verses in the Bible is what Paul said to Timothy, that the love of money is the root of all evil. But so many times people say money is the root of all evil. No. Money is not the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. That's Nabal. He loved his money. He loved his possessions. There's nothing wrong with being rich. There's actually a biblical and godly way to do it. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 through 19, he said, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. That's the biblical model for being rich. There's nothing wrong with being wealthy. But how do you do it? God told people who are wealthy, do not feel bad about enjoying what I gave you. Enjoy it. But do not trust in it. And don't keep it for yourselves, but be generous and ready to share. Because then you're storing up treasures where it really counts. 
not on earth, but in heaven. That's the biblical model. Does that sound like Nabal? Not at all. Do you remember the, the passage we read earlier from Luke 12, the parable that Jesus gave of the fool who wanted to build bigger barns because he had so much stuff? That's Nabal. He's a lot more like that fool than the person that Paul is describing in 1 Timothy. All the wealth in the world is meaningless if you're not here to enjoy it, which is what happened to that fool in Jesus' parable. All the wealth in the world is meaningless without a relationship with God. Because what is certain? Death. Jesus said in Mark 8, 36, What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Whether you're rich or poor or somewhere in the middle, everything good you have is from God. Don't ever forget it and don't be selfish with it like Nabal was here. He lived up to his name, didn't he? So look at verse 12 and 13 here in just a second. We may think for a second, okay, well, Nabal's cruel, he's stubborn, but he better be glad he's, he's doing it to David. Because I just saw how David responds to evil people in chapter 24. If David didn't take vengeance out on Saul, well, surely he'll forgive Nabal and won't do anything about it. Eh. Look at 12 and 13. So David's young men turned their way and went again and came and told all those things, uh, all those, told him all those things. Verse 13. And David said unto his men, we're just going to forgive him. No. David said unto his men, Gird ye on every man his sword. And they girded on every man his sword, and David also girded on his sword. And there went up after, uh, after David about 400 men and 200 abode by the stuff. Wow, that's a much different reaction than what we had in chapter 24, right? After David's amazing display of mercy towards Saul in the very last chapter... The very next story in David's life, he is displaying this bloodthirsty vengeance. He's not going to give us that. Get your swords, boys. Let's go. Who is this guy, right? How can he be so merciful one minute and then so vengeful the next? That's easy. It's because he's a sinner just like us. David's not a superhero. He's not sinless. He's not perfect. He's a great man of faith, okay? Don't, don't, don't misunderstand me. But he's a lot like us. He had a great spiritual victory one day in that cave when he refused to kill Saul. I can't believe how merciful that was. And then here's a man who, who just refused to give him some stuff. And he's ready to go to war with his whole family. We have to constantly be on guard, even right after the big win. Even right after the victory, after the success, after the temptation that you did not yield to, after the loving act you followed through with. If you're not careful after that, you'll fall the next day. When the Houston Cougars beat Louisville, all they had to do was beat North Carolina State. That was already... A finished game. That was done. 
Now, some of you know how that ended in one of the biggest and most iconic upsets in college basketball history. Houston, five slamma jamma, lost by two points to North Carolina State on a buzzer beater. After their huge win over Louisville, there was a huge letdown. One Scottish preacher said one time, let us be as watchful after the victory as before the battle. Living the Christian life is a daily battle. We have to get up every single day ready to serve the Lord because there's going to be new problems that day. There's going to be new decisions that day. There's going to be new temptations that, way, uh, that day. And the things that you did yesterday, yes, they matter. I'm not taking anything away from yesterday. But today's a new day. And you've got to determine in your heart and in your mind, am I going to follow the Lord today? We're not talking about salvation. Once you're saved, that's, that's eternally secure. But we're talking about serving God. You may have served Him yesterday. Are you going to serve Him today? What about tomorrow? It's a decision you have to make every day. And we need God's help. We need God's grace. We need, we need God's mercy. Trusting God one day doesn't mean that you don't have to the next. We came to church today, Brother Matt. Tomorrow's Monday. I can do what I want. No. I'll start the sermon over if you think that. Say, why is it even that important? Why is it so big a deal? What, so what if there's a letdown? So what if there's a failure? So what if there's a mistake? It only takes one decision to change your life forever. Just one. You've heard it takes a lifetime to build a reputation, but just a moment to lose it. So you have to guard your heart. Every day. You can read ahead. You can see what happens in this story. Uh, we're, we're cutting off right in the middle of it. Just for a cliffhanger, I guess. But you can read ahead and see what happens. Na uh, Nabal's wife, Abigail, uses her wisdom to intervene. And she's going to talk some sense into David, thankfully. Because if he would have followed through with his plan, then he would have been attacking his fellow Israelites essentially starting a civil war, that doesn't look real good when you're the next anointed king. Why would I want David to be my king? Look how he treated Nabal. It only takes one decision to ruin you. Let, let David's life be a warning. Trust the Lord and guard your heart every day, especially after the big victory. Well, the New Testament tells us, take heed lest ye fall. If you think you stand, take heed lest ye fall. So don't be lax, don't be proud, don't think that you've got it made. That may be your most vulnerable time. And again, all that's not meant to scare you, but to warn you and to really in a way make you so thankful for the life that you have in Jesus Christ because even if you fail, and we will, Jesus doesn't throw us away. Jesus uses failures every day. Those failures who trust Him, who repent, who seek His will, who want to serve. So get up tomorrow, no matter what happens today, and make a decision tomorrow that I'm going to serve God today. Let's bow for a word of prayer as we have an prepare for our invitation. Father, thank you so much for your word, for the honesty of it, even in, a, in the life of a man like David where we are 
it, it opens us up even to his flaws and failures so that we can learn from him. God, I pray that you will, you will guard our hearts and help us to make decisions that please you. Thank you so much for Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.